Let's show reverence for the word of the Lord. Give it our full attention and our hearts and minds. The word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Amen. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord our God stands forever. And let's pray and ask that his word will be implanted in our hearts now. Fathers, we look at your word. May it be a mirror to show us what you are like. Not to show us only how we fall short or only what we want to be, but help us to see who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Help us especially today, God, to put you first in our hearts and to worship you rightly, to love you properly and to obey you truly we need you holy spirit we need your help we need your grace we need your power to live a life that would please you father god we're desperate for you and we're asking sincerely please come and help us now as we study your word and as we seek to live it according to your holy and perfect will we ask this in the name of jesus our holy and perfect savior and redeemer amen So today we're continuing this deep dive into the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, as they're called in the Hebrew. Last week we looked at the the law of God as a mirror, reflecting who God is and reflecting our sin and reflecting our Savior who saves us from the fact that we can't keep the law perfectly. We looked last week at how there is only one true God and how we must have no other gods before His face. And today we're looking at the complement to that, the second commandment, which says, if there is one true God, then worship him truly. Worship him properly and worship no other God. Today's focus is idolatry. One of my seminary classes when I was studying to be a pastor was a missions class. We went and visited different religious groups around the city to learn about them and to try to build relationships with people in those other religions, Muslims, Hindus, and so on. And one of the places we visited was a Hindu ashram, which is like a small temple, and it was dedicated to Swami Narayan, who was their leader that they believed was an incarnation of one of the gods. And our tour guide uh, allowed us that day to see him preparing his god, the idol, uh, for bed. And so we got there late in the afternoon, and he was feeding the idol fruit, laying flowers before the idol, which was just a statue. And then he laid the idol down and covered the idol with a blanket and tucked it in for bed that night. And what really struck me, and that never left my mind, was how the worshiper had to care for his God. The God depended so much and for so much on this servant of his If enough flowers or food or incense was placed before the idol, then the God was pleased and would bless the worshiper. The formula is the more the worshiper gives to the God, the more the God will give in return to the worshiper. We could call that type of worship manipulation. Now, manipulation in your mind might mean something simply like trying to unfairly influence people to do what you want or get your way. And yes, it does mean that. 
But manipulate means in its root simply to shape something or work something with your hands. You hear the, the Spanish word manos, right? Hands, manipulate. To shape something or move something or change something with your hands. And that's also what the Hebrew word that we find here in the second commandment really means is to carve or to shape an idol with your hands or with your imagination. In this case, if we're thinking about religion and idolatry, manipulate means you control what God does. You determine what shape your God is and you squeeze him into your form and your image and you steer the entire religious operation, putting in your work and your prayers and then God gives you something back in return. Now, I'm not going to just pick on Hindus today because they make idols with their hands out of wood and stone. God is an equal opportunity offender here in the second commandment, and he wants all of us to be offended today at how we all make idols. Amen? Amen. You ready for this? All right. We all must open our hearts today before God's word and let the microscope focus in and zoom in on the disease that we all have within our hearts, which is called religious manipulitis. You hear that? You all are affected by this disease, religious manipulitis. You want to manipulate God and shape him with your hands to be the God that you want to serve, not the God necessarily that really is there. The covenant that God made with his people, however, long ago at Mount Sinai, revealed in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, reminds us that God cannot be manipulated. You can't make him in your image or shape him with your hands or your desires to be whatever you want. Why not? Well, because God is who he is and he loves us too much to let us believe that lie that we can shape God. God made us in his image. He makes us who he wants us to be and his love will not stop loving us. He will not rest until we are beautiful and holy and happy in the truth, not in false worship. What is an idol? Well, it's not always something bad like pornography or the naked power to just have everything. Idols are bad things sometimes, but they're also good things. Idols can be made of anything, really. Um, In verse 4 of Exodus chapter 20, God says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water below. It's Anything in the universe can become an idol. Any created thing can become an idol. And God says, good gifts, even gifts that I've given you, can be used against me to keep me out of your life, to keep me at a distance, to keep me from meddling in your heart and being the true God and shaping you. You can use anything, really. The fruit trees in the Garden of Eden were used to hide from God when he was searching for Adam and Eve and said, I gave you that tree for your good. Now you're using it to hide yourself from me. Idols, essentially, can be made of anything. And and we can turn any good thing into something of a God. We can turn any good thing into something ultimate that's the most important thing in our lives. We can turn anything into an idol. And God simply then becomes our personal assistant, helping us to get more of our idol and making our idols work for us. That's what we might begin to act, as if God is simply... Our gopher, our personal assistant, not our creator and Lord who engineered our very existence and has absolute authority over us. Now let's remember, though, that before we begin to just see the law 
of Exodus 20. We must remember the grace that comes before the law because Exodus 19 teaches us that the God who is and the God who wants to shape us is also the God who loves us. He's not just demanding our allegiance and our in our obedience. He's saying in Exodus 19, remember, you are my treasured possession. Do you remember I am the Lord your God who redeems you from the house of slavery out of the land of Egypt? I graciously made you. And now I'm going to keep making you in my image. I graciously created you, my precious treasured people. I redeemed you. I loved you. I saved you. And now I'm going to teach you my commandments so that you can continue to walk in holiness and be truly happy and have true life before the God who truly is. The second commandment teaches us what idolatry is. And the first question is, well, what is idolatry? The second question we'll look at is, why would God prohibit it? The third question is, what is commanded in this second commandment? And finally, what is provided? What kind of hope do we have when we read this commandment? So let's look at what is idolatry in a little more detail now. Idolatry is simply treating something good as God. Treating something good, something created as something ultimate. Something that you must have. As we looked at last week in the first commandment, have no other gods before me. That's the worst thing you could tell a modern person. That's the thing that will really get on their nerves more than anything is to say to them, there's only one God. He's exclusive. He only wants your heart and he wants you to worship him in only the ways he's told you to. Because, of course, our generation wants to say, let me worship whoever I want in whatever way I want to. I like to think about God like this, fill in the blank. That's our type of religion today that people follow. I think of God in these ways. In my imagination, he comes off as a God who's always loving and always kind and never harsh or rude or tells me to stop doing something that I really enjoy doing. Now, we might think that in ancient Israel, like today, we would know better and be able to keep these commandments, like have no other gods before me or have no idols, because weren't the people of Israel standing before a powerful God who was delivering them with ten plagues out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, doing signs and wonders? Wouldn't they say, of course we'll have no other gods. You alone, God, you're the one. And of course we'll make no idols. There's no other God like you. And How could we ever do such a thing? But that's not the case. In Israel, even as they were slaves in Egypt, we read last week in Exodus 20, verses 7 through 8, that Israel feasted her eyes on detestable things in Egypt and did not cast away the idols of Egypt. But they mixed in a little tolerance. Eh, you know, we'll worship God, but we'll also be open to other things religiously. And, and they mixed the knowledge of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with the gods of Egypt. And throughout their history, you see this repeated over and over very soon, even after the Ten Commandments were given. Just flip the page, maybe one or two pages, in Exodus chapter 24, when God comes and gives His covenant promises to the people and His covenant commandments, and they say in Exodus 24, verse 3, Oh yes, hallelujah, we will do all the words of the law that You've commanded us. Amen, praise the Lord. Thank You, Jesus. We love this law. And what does Moses say? Get some blood from a sacrificed animal. And let's sprinkle the people with blood because what they need is a reality check. They need atonement. They need forgiveness because they cannot keep this law. And what happened moments later, days later, when the very Ten Commandments made on stone tablets carved by the finger of God from heaven were still warm, coming down from heaven, just out of God's mouth, just out of his fingerly scribbling on the tablets. What happened when the, the, the tablets were coming down the mountain by Moses' delivery? The people were worshiping a golden calf. That very day, making idols. Aaron, the brother of Moses, the high priest of Israel, saying, 
Hey, here's your gods, O Israel, that saved you from Egypt and rescued you and brought you out. This is your God, this golden calf. And then what happened as soon as they began wandering through the desert? About to enter the promised land, 40 years later, they're worshiping the, the sexualized God of the people, the Baal of Peor in Numbers chapter 25. And God wiped so many of his people out that day. And then as they enter the promised land, what do they do? Continue worshiping the Baals and all sorts of gods of the people of the land, the Canaanites, and continually just stirring into the religious recipe a little of this and a little of that, whatever seemed to work, a little tolerance here, a little pluralism there, and that's who their God was to them. It was just one among many. Maybe, maybe first on their charts, but then there were two, three, and four closely following. And God says, no, I want no other gods before me, and I want no representations of me that I have not allowed. That's what idolatry is. Is it serving God as he truly is? And we need to ask, did Israel ever keep the first commandment? Did Israel ever keep the second commandment? It looks like they did not. And it looks like we do not as well. It's a good question to ask ourselves today. When we hear God's word, when we see God's heart coming to us, won't we simply turn away from here today and continue to serve idols? Won't we still struggle with that temptation? John Calvin The reformer from Switzerland said, the heart is an idle factory. Every day you wake up and punch in and your work is making idols. That's what your heart does best. You just churn them out on the assembly line. You like this idol and that idol. You like to make more and more. And when God says, kill that idol, you you might kill that idol, but then another one springs up in its place. Your heart and mine are idol factories. We struggle with these commands. What are some of the idols we struggle with? What is our idolatry. What is maybe the identity of some of your idols in your own heart? There's nothing wrong with gold. There's nothing wrong with calves. But when you put gold and calves together and begin worshiping them, that's the problem. So what are the good things in your life? It might be money like gold. It might be a a career. It might be even family. But you begin worshiping those things or making them your priority. And then they turn into idols, ugly idols, insane idols. The key is this, that whatever we have in this world, whatever good gifts of God, we we cannot equate anything with God. We cannot make any of those things God. In our way, it might be people say, hey, love is everything. You know, the Bible says God is love. First John says that many times. And then people switch it around and they turn the created thing into the creator. They put something in this world, which is good, like love, and then they flip it and say, well, that will become God. God is love. Well, okay, love is God. As long as you love, it's okay. As long as there's love, don't tell me anything else because love is the most important thing. Love is the ultimate thing. Love has become an idol. What about tolerance? God is tolerant to sinners like us. He's patient with us. He, He gives us time to repent and to turn. But is tolerance God? No. God is God. And he is holy. And he's patient in his holiness. But tolerance is not God. What are our idols? It could be something hanging in your closet parked in your garage, sleeping in your bed. It could be money that you have in your pocket or your bank account that's bearing interest, or it could be money that you don't have but really want to have. Anything could be your idol. It could be sitting on your bookshelf, looking back at you in the mirror. It could be anything you create with your mind. It's ironic that the original idols back in the day of the Israelites were often made with people's hands. And many people still hold an idol in their hands today. A handheld device. 
Idols could be anything. Anything in the universe besides God that we love or adore or serve. Anything good that becomes a God to us. Anything that we delight in or devote ourselves to more than Christ. That's an idol. People obviously could be our idols. People. Famous people, of course, can be your idols because there's American Idol and people like that. But then there's families. Boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, even children can become idols. Put everything into them. Everything matters because what's most important is that they get what you never had or that they progress into the people you want them to be. And what God says, well, that's secondary. You know, I want my kid to perform well. That's what's most important. Not what God tells me about raising children. Even the very law of God can become an idol. Even the second commandment could become an idol. You begin to think, well, because I don't make idols in the way that I think I shouldn't, and because I'm better than someone else, then I'm keeping the law, and that is my significance, and that is my salvation. And as long as I keep keeping the law, then I will be okay. And I really don't need a Savior daily, always, to depend on and to cry out to for mercy, because I'm doing okay now. When someone asks me to pray for them, I say, no, I'm okay. I don't really need prayer. I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm, I've got this. I'm keeping the law and doing pretty well in life. I don't need Jesus' help or interference. And thank you, but I'm better than that. Even our Christianity, our religiosity, can become manipulative. Find your true joy in God, not even simply following God's law. Find your true joy and significance in the salvation Christ freely gives you, not simply thinking that you are now like Christ more than other people. See, all idols have this in common, guys. Two things. All idols that I've just mentioned, whether it's people or money or ideas or love or even law-keeping, these, these things are all idols if they have these two things in common. Number one is you can control your idol. And number two, your idol still somehow controls you. When we read of the, the second commandment and he says, do not carve with your hands any idol. Do not shape anything into the image of God or any other gods. He's saying you're making things you can control with your hands or with your life. As long as you're in control of it, as long as you're um, consistent with it, you feel like you've got it managed pretty well. You're manipulating it pretty well. But at the same time, that thing will come back and it will begin controlling you, enslaving you. You might become addicted to it and you can't get out of its Tractor beam pull. It just always wants your heart. It always wants your attention. Nothing else compares. Nothing else competes with that thing. If you can control that thing, but yet it still controls you, that's an idol. In the Bible, God says, I'm not an idol. I'm not like the idols. He says in places like Jeremiah, he says, I am transcendent above everything. I'm, I'm bigger than the idols. But he also says, I'm so near to you and so close to you. I'm closer than the idols. I control you in a way that no idol could ever rule you or or have authority over you. I alone am God. But also I come so close that I love you and bless you more than any idol ever could. God alone can do that. God alone can't be controlled with our human hands or hearts or imaginations. And God alone has the right and the responsibility and the ability to rule over us as our authority. So how do we identify our idols? Well, we took a quiz earlier. And I'll just ask you the same questions now. What would you rather be doing right now? Uh, maybe at the end, okay, brother? What would you rather be doing right now than sitting here, hearing a sermon, worshiping God? Would you rather be doing something else than coming to worship with God's people on a Sunday morning? That might be your idol, okay? What would you do if that thing were taken away from you? 
What would you do if you never get that thing? What's that blank that you filled in? If you don't ever get that, will you turn your back on the true God? Will you say, God, I prayed and I asked and I obeyed. I kept your law, but you still didn't deliver. Well, brothers and sisters, that's your idol. Martin Luther said, we saw this quote last week, what is it to have God, to have no other God, but to have Him alone? It means that God is the one to which we look for all good and we find a refuge in Him in times of trouble and trial. That to which your heart clings, he says, is really your God. What is that thing to which your heart clings? What is the thing that competes with your attention when you say, I'd rather not spend time in the Word or in prayer or with God's people, or I know that I'm supposed to obey in this moment, but I'm going to go ahead and disobey. I'm going to take the shortcut, and the temptation seems better. What is that thing? That's your idol. Often in America... And all over the modern world, two things might be recognized and identified as key idols. One might be culture. The other might be comfort. Sometimes you could call it the culture of comfort that we live in in America. But culture could be different things. Maybe it's the color of your skin or the place you went to school or the type of job you have or the type of house you want to live in one day. Maybe it's even your type of religion and the type of church you go to. Last week, I was here on a Saturday morning with some of the brothers and a man walked by and began just berating me for having archery on Saturday because he said Saturday is the Lord's day. Saturday is the Sabbath, he said, and you're desecrating the Lord's day by having archery on Saturday. And he just went on and on. And eventually I just walked away because there was no use talking to him, much less listening to him. He was saying, my religion is better, my way is better, and because of who you are in this neighborhood, you are not right. And he said, my religion, my culture stands over yours. You should feel ashamed of yourself, he said to me, right? Now we feel the same way. We say, look at how we worship. We have the right way. We have the right angle. We have the right information. That could even become an idol for us. Our culture, our comfort, the culture of comfort. Hey, don't ask me to sacrifice anything. Comfort is my idol. I serve and sacrifice only for comfort. I'll, I'll sacrifice anything. I'll sacrifice my kids, my wife, my family, church, God. I'll sacrifice anything as long as I'm comfortable. Just don't ask me to give that up. That's my God. Well, I think we've looked enough at what idolatry is. Let's look at why it's prohibited in the second commandment. Why is idolatry prohibited? Well, you could sum it up by saying this. God is a jealous God, and he's jealous of us. He's jealous for us. He's jealous that we would have the highest good and that we would have him who is our highest good. God wants the best for us. He wants us the happiest we could be and the holiest we could be, and he's jealous for that. And that's why he says, don't turn anywhere else. Don't go shopping for any other gods, and don't even make me into the God you think I should be, because then you won't be as happy and as holy as I want you to be. Now, je jealousy is mentioned here in this commandment that verse 5 says, we shall not bow down to these other idols or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God. Now, sometimes that bothers us when we think about God being jealous, doesn't it? Because I thought jealousy was a sin. I thought that when I got jealous of people, my mom and dad used to correct me. And when my kids are jealous... I correct them and discipline them and tell them that that's not right. And, and so how does God get off being jealous when we're not allowed to? And truly, most of the places in the Bible where you see human jealousy, it's a sin. So what's the deal here? Why does God get a free pass on jealousy? Well, here's why. Because jealousy really has at its root in the Hebrew the idea of zeal and a, a marriage-type faithfulness. 
jealousy. If you say, hey, husbands and wives, are you okay if your wife goes out and sleeps with another man? Or are you okay if another woman comes and sleeps with your husband? We would say, of course not. I'm zealous. I'm passionate about my spouse. I want them all to myself exclusively, have no other wives before me, have no other husbands before me, and don't go out and worship any, anyone else in that way. Don't go and bow down to anyone else or lay down with anyone else. Exclusive love, exclusive devotion. That's what we have here is a God who loves his people so passionately, he can't tolerate any other lovers. That's, that's the problem these days is when people are killing each other literally because they're jealous. They're jealous of who has their land. They're jealous of who has a better car. And they're literally killing each other. They're competing in the, in the classrooms and in the laboratories and at the workplaces and all the drama that happens in relationships because they're jealous. And sure, that's a sin. But when you have a pure love that's not greedy and interested in self-gain and manipulating other people, you know, manipulating is shaping what other people do to meet your needs. But when you have a love that's so pure and holy like God's and he's not manipulating, he's simply giving and everything he's doing is sacrificing for his people and giving to them. And he wants their total holiness and total devotion. He wants what's best for them. Then you can be jealous without any kind of problems or any kind of um, issues. You can be jealous when you love someone so deeply and so purely. You're not trying to take from them. You're trying to give to them everything they need and everything that you have. And that's the jealousy of God who calls himself in the scriptures our husband. The one who's faithful in his love and who demands fidelity and faithfulness from us. There's a general rule in the city and in our age in general today that men are dogs. That's just a general principle of life you should get in your mind, especially if you're a young woman. Men are dogs. Okay, so can you say that with me if you're a woman? This is the mantra you need to remember all the time. Men are dogs. I know you don't want to repeat it with me because it sounds bad, but just go out on the streets of Chicago and, and see what happens if you're a woman. The dogs chase the foxes, and my wife is a fox, and so often she gets hounded and barked at by so many of these guys around here, and I'm jealous, not in the sense that like, oh man, I wish I could be like that guy. No, I'm jealous like, she's my wife, get your own, punk, idiot, you know, learn how to behave yourself, heal, you know, put yourself on a leash if you need to, but we have this common conversation where Shannon comes home and says, well, I got hollowed out again today, you know, got hollowed out today. And I'm like, okay, I want to know who, when, what, where, why is he still nearby so I can holler at him? Where's this guy? And she usually tells me, like, I try to be polite and, you know, all this stuff. And usually I'm thinking, like, you should have just punched him or kicked him or something. But she's always usually very nice about it, just kind of turns away and tries to ignore them. And that's fine, but it makes me angry with a zealous jealousy that I think I am allowed to have. One time there was a guy at Aldi, this was a few years ago. He was um, waiting outside, I guess, for people's carts. You know, you got your quarters, you put your quarters in for the cart, and Shannon was returning her cart, and suddenly this guy with a tattooed face and crazy-looking eyes just walked up to her, leaned in behind, and gave her a kiss on her neck. She ran back into the store where the, the security guard was, and I guess the guy fled. And she came home that night and told me, I couldn't believe it. I was like, Are you, he did what? And she was like bleaching her neck off as she was telling me, like, he actually kissed me on the neck. I want to know who is this guy? Where can I find him? So I can break his neck, you know? <laughs> a couple weeks later, literally, I'm reading the news online, and I see a guy with a tattooed face and crazy-looking eyes, and it says that he pulled 
the gun out of the security guard at Aldi's holster. He tried to pull the gun out of his holster, and the security guard shot the guy in the leg. And they arrested him, and now he's locked up. And Shannon saw the picture and said, that's the guy. That's the guy. Jealousy. That's the type of jealousy God has for people that want to hurt you, people that want to take advantage of you, people that have no good in mind for you, and yet a lot of times we're just giving ourselves willing to our idols, and God says those idols will crush you, they will, they will command you to do things you shouldn't do, they will control you in ways you shouldn't be controlled. I alone love you. I am your husband. I will protect you. I will keep you pure. I will keep you holy. God says even in this commandment, I will visit the sin of the Father upon future generations for those who hate me. Meaning those who turn away from me and don't care about my commands, I will visit or pay back upon them the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. This is also a confusing idea for many of us. God's using the same word he used to visit the Israelites in their affliction in Egypt. He visited the Egyptians with judgments upon them. He says in the same way, I'll visit people who make idols and turn away from me and don't love me completely. And I'll do it to the third and fourth generation. What we have here, of course, is this cycle of generational sins that we've probably heard about. Generational sins. A parent sins. It affects the child. It affects the grandchild. It affects the great-grandchild. To three and four generations sometimes, there's this principle that the Bible's describing here in this commandment that sins have consequences and it affects the whole community and it, it has cycles to it and it affects generations within the community. An abusive father sows the seeds of pain and violence into his, into his children's minds and bodies and those children are much more likely to abuse their own children or to take advantage of some other innocent child one day and to add to the shame and confusion of their own hearts and lives. To make another victim in the world. It just perpetuates in this cycle of generational sin. Many of us have been in those cycles where, where there's a contagiousness to sin, where we're, just, we're broken, we're abused, we're, we're worn out from it all, and sometimes that's all we've known. But God says, I can break you free from that cycle. And break you free from those idols that control your hearts, that tell you that they own you. And that's not true. He says, I love you and I am your God and I will set you free from idols. The ones that have hurt you and the, one that, the ones that you've used even to hurt others. And so what can we say about this generational sin and the threat that looms over us? What can we say about this cycle of inherited pain and shame and the, the repeated offenses that happen in our lives and our families well, some of you have probably heard of what Ezekiel said in his prophecy, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. Ezekiel said something that sounds quite different. He says, children should not be punished for the sins of the father. In fact, it's not just Ezekiel, a prophet much later that said that, but it's Moses himself who gave the law of God just literally a few years later. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, God said something of the same effect, he said in Deuteronomy 24, 16, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. What we have here is we have Exodus, the law, giving us a principle. When sin is in the world, when idolatry is happening, it perpetuates itself. It spreads. It affects the community. It infects people. It spreads through generations. That's a general principle of how things happen, how it is in the world. Sin destroys community for generations to come. Deuteronomy 24 and Ezekiel 18 give us something a little bit different, a little bit of different angle. It gives us not just a principle, but it gives us protection 
from the principle of how life works. More specifically, it gives us a legal protection, specifically a legal function where God says, I will not hold you accountable. You will not have to pay for someone else's sins. I'm not going to punish you for their sins. You, you will be affected by them. There are unintended consequences. There are things that you just can't help because it happens in life. But he says, I won't hold you accountable for someone else's sin in your life. And then the gospel does something even better. It gives us more than a principle. It gives us more than a legal protection. It gives us power and promise to be set free from those sins. Because in Christ, we have someone who breaks the chains and sets the captives free. We have a God who breaks the cycle of generational sin. And he comes and actually renews our hearts so those idols cannot have control over us anymore. They can't reach deep inside. And God says, I've got something better than three or four generations of sin and punishment. I've got thousands of generations, thousands of people, millions and billions of people that I love for, for thousands of generations that I will show mercy to and kindness to, covenantal faithfulness to. The grace of God reaches beyond the, the judgment of God. Mercy, the Bible tells us, triumphs over judgment. He says, I'll show mercy a thousandfold. It's a thousand times stronger than your sin. My love, my grace, my mercy, my covenant to my people. And so why does God prohibit idolatry? Because he says, I love you too much and I will not let you go. And, and then thirdly, what is commanded in the, third, in the second commandment? What's required of us? You could sum it up and say simply true worship of the true God. Or you could say love and obedience. That's what the command says, those last few phrases. God says, I'm showing steadfast love to thousands of people who love me and keep my commandments. I love you, my people. And what I require of you is love and obedience in return. I save you by grace and I want you to live a life of holiness, a life of freedom, because I set you free. You see, a lover like God demands exclusive devotion for his people. Think about how lovers love. They want your attention. They don't want you to read the newspaper or be distracted with a TV show when they're talking to you. They want you to look them in the eye and show them your attention. When you're on a date with your lover, they don't want you surfing the web or checking your text messages. They want you. They want all of you. And that's how God is. I want your love. I want your obedience. I want your attention and your affection. And I want an attitude from you that says, how can I please you? Lovers love to please each other. They say, hey, your wish is my command. I happily become your slave and I'll do what you want because I trust you. Because we are in love with each other, because we will take care of each other. I trust you. How can I make you happy? And when there is something ugly that creeps into the relationship, a sin or a conflict or something that truly is ugly, what does the lover do? Does the, the lover ignore it and say, that's okay, love is blind and love turns the other cheek and love allows painful, ugly things to just perpetuate? No, lovers are very diligent. They root out the sin. They point out the sin. They say, we can't have this in our relationship. We love each other. We're stuck together for life and so we have to get it right. We have to begin working on these problems in our relationship. And so what an enemy does is just simply mock the sin or insult you for it, and then they walk away and leave you with hurt feelings. But a lover doesn't leave you. They don't mock you. They say, I'm concerned about what's wrong in our lives, in our relationship. I'm concerned what I see in you, and I will not rest until I make you beautiful and happy again so that we can have true, faithful love once again. And that's what God does. He's not just our personal assistant or our therapist saying, just tell me about your problems and I will just affirm where you are. I'll just say, mm-hmm, mm, yes, mm-hmm, you, you are okay with me. You, you deserve to think like that and 
someone hurts your feelings and you're just a victim. And that's okay. Keep doing whatever you want. It's okay with me. I'm just an okay affirming God. No, he says, no, no. I'm a jealous God. I'm a faithful husband who will make sure that my bride is perfected and spotless and holy and purified on the day that I return for her. I will not let you stay in sin or shame. I will make you what I've designed you to be. I will shape you because I am a jealous God. Paul says to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, a church that had all sorts of problems in it, all sorts of sin and all sorts of crazy things going on. He says to the people in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Brothers and sisters, I have a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to the one husband, Jesus. That means I committed you to him. You're engaged to him to be his wife. And I, I plan to present you to him as a pure virgin in Christ. He says, I'm not going to settle just for an ugly church that's full of sin and problems. He says, I promised God that I would do my best as your apostle and your teacher and your pastor and your elder and the writer of scripture to make you as pure and holy as you could be, to teach you as best I could so that when I say, okay, God, I did my job, here's the church, that God will be pleased with the the byproduct, with the result. I hope that we will not rest in each other's lives until we, as a community, lovingly get into each other's faces and pray for one another and say, let me walk with you and help you to become the bride of Christ that you're destined to be. God is jealous for us. We should be jealous for each other. We should be passionate for each other. Not just giving each other what we want, but what we really need. We need holiness, not just happiness. I used to work at a restaurant when I was in seminary. worked at one here in Chicago as well when I first started pastoring and started the church. And there was a server at one of those restaurants, a single mom, who had one child at the time. And she told me that her one goal in parenting was to make her son happy. That was her main goal. And as I pushed back and said things like, well, what if he does things that are wrong or that you know you disagree with? And she said, I just want him to be happy. You know, Happiness is the goal. Happiness is the God. I would simplify it and say, happiness, my child's happiness is the idol in my life. And I will sacrifice everything. I'll put beside my own convictions, my own values even, as long as he's happy. And to me, that just sounded very strange. And I said, what would happen if you give your five-year-old whatever he wants? You know, as much sugar as he wants. He would OD within a few hours on sugar. I mean, what would happen if you give a child, a selfish person who likes to manipulate and make everything about him, what would you do if that person got whatever they wanted? That's not true happiness. That's not true life. That's not what God can allow for his people. And if you give a teenager whatever she wants, what's going to happen? A miserable teenage life. Maybe some moments of happiness and real thrills, but later in life, a lot of regrets. You could say the same thing for a 25-year-old, 35-year-old, even an old guy like me. You could say, if God gave us whatever we wanted, we're in trouble. We don't shape God and manipulate him to get what we want. He says, I will make you who you need to be, and it will be beautiful, and you will be so happy in the end, because I love you so much. You're my bride. Now, finally, I just want to look at one scripture in closing to answer this question. What is provided in the second commandment? When God says, have no idols, just worship me truly and love me fully and obey my commands. He says, let me provide something for you. It's the love that goes for thousands of generations. It's the love that God shows us in Christ. And it's the love that I want to read from Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm just going to read a few phrases from this this long chapter, and I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter at some point on your own. But Ezekiel chapter 16, here's what God says. I'll just reference a few verses as I summarize it for you. 
God comes to his people Israel, who he describes here in the first few verses. Verse 4 says, I found you at your birth on the day you were born. Your cord was not cut, so the umbilical cord still attached. A brand new infant, helpless, totally dependent. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, the ancient medicine of the time, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field. You were abhorred on the day you were born. So he found his people Israel just abandoned, floundering, naked, ashamed, dirty, sinful, rejected. And he says, here's what I did for you. Verse 6, when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I say, I said to you in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a plant in the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed. Your hair had grown. Yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you. And entered into a covenant with you, declares Yahweh God, and you became mine. See, he married his people. He cleansed his bride. He gave her covering for her shame. And he made a covenant vow of love to her. He said, you're mine. You're my bride. Then he says in verse 9, I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I cleansed you. I, I washed you. There's a bridal bath that happens in ancient times where the bride bathes herself because she doesn't do it every day back in those days, but on that day, make sure she bathes and then perfumes herself and decks herself out with all the beautiful wedding gowns and the scarves and the veils and all the beautiful things. And that's what God said he did in verse 10. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and, and shod you, put shoes on your feet with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck and a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown upon your head. You became my princess, the most beautiful bride any husband could imagine. I made you beautiful. I loved you. And then he goes on to describe over the next bulk of this chapter how Israel then turned after other lovers and ran after other gods and made idols and let all sorts of strangers come into her and kept God outside waiting in the cold. That's what most of this chapter is about is my bride committed adultery against me. My bride that I found when she was completely helpless, I gave her everything. I gave her myself, my word, everything. And, and she's just turning back once again to false gods, to other lovers, to other things that she has imagined would be better than me. I can't stop thinking about her. I can't get her out of my mind. And she just keeps putting me out of her mind and consumes herself with other lovers. And then at the end of the chapter, God says, but I will not let her go. He says to us, his people, I will not let you go. My jealous love will keep coming after you. Here's what I provide in the second commandment. He says at the end of the chapter, verses 59 through 63, let these words be God's word to you now. As you think about how you've broken the commands, turned after other lovers and other gods, how he's still faithful, predicting that you would go astray, providing a way of salvation in Christ, making an eternal covenant with you that will never be broken or annulled. Here's what he says. Ezekiel 16, verse 59. Thus says Yahweh God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways 
and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you and show and you shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded. That means just amazed and surprised and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you for all that you've done, declares Yahweh God. He says it doesn't matter what you've done. I'm going to amaze you. Your mouth is going to be shut silent because of the wonders of my grace, the amazing love that I show you. I will never break my promise to you, he says, because I alone am the true God and I alone am the jealous husband that you need. Let's close in prayer now. Thank you, God, for the words of Scripture. Thank you for the words of the Gospel which teach us that a jealous God doesn't jealously come and manipulate us in a greedy way to get what he wants. He comes to us in a jealous way to give us what we need. He doesn't let us shape him into our own image, but he comes to shape us into the people that would truly be beautiful, the beautiful bride of Christ. Thank you for your life-changing love, for your law which changes us and points us to the truth and to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for a love-changed life that you've given us, your people. Thank you for the words of this song from a modern poet who said about you, God, he is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. And I realize just how beautiful you are, God, and how great your affections are for me. Oh, how he loves us so. Oh, how he loves us. We thank you for the weight of your wind and your mercy, which blows in this place today, which cleanses us of our sins. We thank you for Jesus, who did not come to crush his unfaithful bride, but to redeem her and to cleanse her and to die for her. We thank you for the, the weight of mercy, which is upon us now, that we, we don't want to leave this place and turn away from grace and mercy and run after other lovers. We want to be set free in the freedom of grace and turn to you alone. And so in your name, Jesus Christ, the the lover of all lovers, the faithful God. Help us, we pray, to be your faithful bride. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and...